This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. I'm Erin Acevedo, writer and budding entrepreneur. And I'm Eric Barrage, co-founder of Blue Wolf and author of Customer Obsessed. In each episode, we explore the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, how to engage with customers, and what it takes to build a successful customer-obsessed business. Along the way, we'll interview other customer-obsessed business leaders to get their take on how to connect with customers. And we're not going to play it safe. We'll share heroic and inspiring customer stories along with truly ridiculous, cringeworthy ones, my favorite, as you join us on the road to customer obsession. And I'll be taking full advantage of having my longtime mentor in the recording booth and will be peppering Eric with the burning questions that I and every other entrepreneur and leader need answered. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Customer Obsessed. Eric, how are you? I'm great, Aaron. How are you today? I'm excited for today's podcast. I'm well. Also can't wait because we are joined by Bob Furness, an expert in the field of customer service, to talk about its impact on customer experience. And to let everyone know, while preparing for the interview with Bob, we discovered that we had too much we wanted to cover for just one episode, so we've decided to split it into two parts. So without further ado, take it away, Eric. Yes, we have a thought leader with us here today, folks, and I'll start by sharing the story of how I first met Bob, probably over a decade ago, when Blue Wolf was cranking along, growing business, still fairly small, one of Salesforce's earliest partners, as everyone knows. And at that time, I would say this is 2005, 2006, we were primarily doing Salesforce automation projects. We were primarily doing projects around Salesforce's core business, which was SFA. But we saw Salesforce start to really invest in their contact center product, Service Cloud. And we saw Mark on stage doing his thing, starting to talk about how they wanted to dominate that space. And I knew at Blue Wolf that we were woefully underrepresented in terms of the talent that we had around call center. And I happened to be on vacation out in Idaho, and I was on a hike with a friend of mine who invited another friend along. And that individual is a guy named Brad Cleveland. Unbeknownst to me, Brad was the founder of an organization called ICMI, which is the International Customer Management Institute. It's largely regarded as the preeminent think tank for call centers, contact centers, and customer experience. And when I looked Brad up, I saw that he was this like illustrious individual. So I very quickly reached out to him and said, hey, I'm the guy that you met on that hike, and I am in desperate need of a leader to build a call center business for Blue Wolf. And Brad put me in contact with our guest today, a gentleman by the name of Bob Furness. And Bob has been recognized as a top 50 thought leader by ICMI. He also, a couple of years ago, received the ICMI Lifetime Achievement Award. And really what he did for us is he came in and brought the conversation to the contact center, brought the conversation to customer service. How do you deploy technology, process, and culture in a way that creates obsession with customers from the service side of your business? Bob built an amazing organization inside of Blue Wolf and, and as I said, was our thought leader and still is in that position today in the industry. So, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here today. It's great to hear your voice. Hey, Eric. Excited about being here today. Could not be 
more honored than to uh, spend some time with you today talking about thank you for the story. I think you forgot the part where you told me a couple of years later that I was an experiment to find out whether that was something that you actually needed. But the good part was after you told me I was an experiment, you told me I, I had been a good experiment. So yeah. that, that made everything okay. Yeah, I never used to tell people they were an experiment in the beginning. You know, that never, <laughs> never really worked. <laughs> it doesn't. It would not have worked if you had told me. But <laughs> So Bob, I remember our first conversations and I want you to tell our audience, like, how did you get your start? in this business? How did you become a, a call center guru? Well, if you go back way, way, way too many years ago, I began working at a contact center. At the time, it was called a call center or a phone room at Greyhound Bus Lines. And um, I started out as an agent answering phones and talking to customers. And I found that it was something that I liked, but Greyhound moved their individual city phone rooms into a, a central location in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we had one of the largest ACDs because we had enough room for 110 people in the same contact center. So really didn't realize that I really was around when it first became a contact center. At that time, based on what I understand, the transportation industry was really the only ones that had ventured out into building these ACD contact center environments where you had hundreds of people taking the same type calls. So, What kind of questions were you answering in a Greyhound bus phone room. I'm going to keep going with phone room, by the way. I like <laughs> well, I'll, I'll even date myself worse. In the phone room was a was one of those phones that had 10 keys across the top of it. And when you put somebody on hold, you had to figure out whether it was blinking fast or slow on line five to go back and answer the call. So now I've really dated myself. <laughs> but the kind of calls we were taking was um, just fares and schedules and the same things you would you would expect today if you were trying to fly from Wichita, Kansas to uh, New York City. You know, you pick up a phone and you call someone and you ask, how do I get there? Now, obviously, telephone was the only channel back then. But the first call that I took that I remember being one of those horrible customer service situations that you can't fix was one where a lady had ridden a bus to her wedding somewhere in Kansas and had gotten off the bus and her luggage didn't show up. And I was the guy who got to tell her that the bus didn't come back through Kansas in that city for three weeks. So it was one of those off the road routes. So you can't win in those customer service environments. Well, well, where was the luggage though? Like, so she gets off the bus. Was the luggage like in the bottom of the bus or? It had gotten left in St. Louis. Oh, so I, I knew oh. where the luggage was. I just huh. knew it wasn't going to get to Kansas. So, But even back then they were scanning luggage? Like you could tell. No, they, they weren't scanning. I, I, I could tell the bus had left Memphis and I knew it wasn't in Memphis. It had gone to St. Louis. She had switched buses, so it had to be in St. Louis. I knew it wasn't in Memphis. So I'm a huge believer in the notion of having the human touch. And I know most of the big brands out there and even startup companies today typically still engineer themselves and, and architect themselves to have a call center function inside of their business. So that voice is, is part of their ongoing communication with clients. And I know you're still in the business today. Bring us up to speed. Like, where are you today, Bob? What are you doing? Who are you working for? I know you left Blue Wolf a while ago. Bring us up to date on Bob Furness. So I lead a similar practice to what I led at Blue Wolf around service and support for Slalom, one of the partners for Salesforce. And my focus is around contact centers, 
recently at Slalom, I've taken over the financial services aspect of our global practice and the health care aspects of our global practice. And I think you and I talked yesterday about, wow, what, what a crazy world that has become because of COVID and because mm. of all the needs that hospitals and doctor's offices and governments and then you can move over into the banking world where $352 billion was basically allocated with no process in place and no structure and no systems. So it's been a crazy time recently in this world of service-related interactions with customers around COVID. So Yeah, I mean, on the government side too, I mean, you have so many small businesses now trying to apply for these programs and literally looking for lifelines. And I hear the stories every day about how none of this stuff is scaling. And it's because, you know, we couldn't forecast this. We didn't realize we were going to have a moment in time when all of a sudden every single small business in America was going to be logging onto the same websites at the same time, right? And not only that, I'm going to hop in, Eric, because with Skywatcher, the stargazing tour company, I've had to apply for the Paycheck Protection Loan. And my sister and co-owner, she applied immediately as soon as we could last week. And I just got an email this morning saying they had received it and were reviewing it. So again, this is, I can speak from personal experience. Mm. This is a very slow process in a time of crisis and it's it's been tough and I'm not even sure when they're going to be able to contact us because as you say, there are thousands of small businesses applying for these loans. And according to Chase's process, at least, an individual has to review the application and then call us. We can't call them. It's this whole thing. So we are still waiting for the application to even completely finish and to learn whether or not we've been approved for a loan. What's interesting is that you would think the companies that may very well have the answer quickly are the large banks and the mega banks. Like, come on, you had to have a system somewhere that was capable of this. What we're finding is that it's the smaller banks or the smaller regional banks that are being successful because they're more agile in their movement around being able to bring up new systems, bring up new applications. So it, it's an interesting time also to think you've got the larger bank and all of their processes and all their dealings with applications and software versus this regional bank or even perhaps this credit union that decides they're going to get into the, into the play. So the business is coming from both sides of the spectrum. And you're seeing that unfold in real time right now with some of your customers, absolutely. it sounds like. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how much of it's cultural versus how much of it is the big companies just have these systems that are so hard to change and so hard to deploy? It depends on the leadership of whether they're w willing to jump in to fix it in an agile format. So I, I probably I'm not supposed to say this, but... No, no, Bob, on this podcast, you can say anything you want. That's, <laughs> that's the beauty of it. <laughs> um, you know, if you're a company who's willing for us to start working for you without a contract, we can start working for you to start solving problems. Right. Now, so maybe it's part of it is cultural in that the big bank is not going to allow that. It's risk the small guy, The small yeah. guy that's going, I'm a regional bank. I've got 12 cities. There's money to be made here. There's opportunity to be made here that you have a leader that's able to step in and go, yes, start now. Start on Friday afternoon. Yep. Uh, so, so that's also a situation that I think drives why they're being successful is that they're culturally adapt to make quick decisions. Yeah. Well, they're willing to take a little more risk. Yep. 
they have more trust in their frontline employees and they're able to provide a, a quicker level of transparency through their internal supply chain to make things happen. We talk about this all the time, this whole notion of risk, trust, and transparency. And businesses that can enable those values internally can move quickly in times like these. Unfortunately, I don't think the government necessarily falls into that bucket, specifically the federal government, and even it's the, the large states, right? It's, it's not in their DNA. Well, I can tell you there's been some governments that have moved quickly, that have adapted. There's also governments that are dealing, I, we've all forgotten that our, our license for travel, of course, we're not traveling anymore. But the star license aspect of our license is not going to be valid for travel starting in, it's either October or uh, January of 2020. That's another example of where before COVID and before we all became isolated, governments were getting very large volumes of interactions around how do I change my license out? And so what companies like we're doing is providing chatbots and AI-assisted digital interactions that allow for that person to get the right answer at the right time in a very simplified digital channel where they're coming to your website anyway at looking for answers, but they don't know how to find them. So if I can take you through an AI-assisted knowledge portal, I can get you the answers that you need quickly. I kind of looked into that a while ago because I had to get a new license. And I did some research and I could renew my license online, but I wasn't going to get the new one. To get that, you actually have to go to the DMV. You do. I mean, I would rather have a colonoscopy, honestly. But it's your only choice right now. <laughs> I know. I know. So I'm waiting. Like, I literally, I'm putting it off. And oh, to walk into a DMV, I mean, I, 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 I actually feel sick to my stomach right now. I need a moment. Anyhow, let's move on. So Aaron, uh, let me hand it over to you. I know you've got some questions for Bob. I do. Thank you, Eric. But before I get to that one, actually, actually, Bob, I do have one more question for you. And this is around the AI and the chatbots and, and the knowledge centers and everything there. And you talk about how this has been applied to the enhanced driver's license issue for travel and all of that. If a company had something like that in place, right, where they had the AI infrastructure and the chatbot and everything set up, how quickly can that be pivoted to other areas of knowledge? I'm very, very curious about that because if banks, right, had already had something like that in place for themselves to answer normal day-to-day -day questions, would it be possible to pivot more easily towards including new information specifically around the paycheck protection loan process and everything like that? Or is that kind of pie in the sky? I'm oversimplifying that. No, I don't think you're oversimplifying it. Organizations that have AI infrastructure and AI platforms, then I can build out a new kind of chatbot or a new kind of information portal pretty quickly. What you're dealing with is our, our intents. And if you think about intents, the bot has to understand what you're asking for. What is your intent? So you may come to that bot and you may type in, I have a question about my star license, or you may type in star license, or you may be like Eric and not know that it's called a star license. And so you just say, how do I renew my license? Well, the bot has to understand that what you're trying to do is re renew your license. In the context of that, it should know that if you were in an authenticated portal and it knew who Aaron was, it could say, Aaron already has a license. She's up for renewal on Oct in October. 
we need to go ahead and answer this question from a star license perspective, from the new way the license is. So the ability to set up intents, to set up that is the first step. And then it's it's teaching the bot how to answer the questions. So there is some manual intervention in that. But if the bot is the right kind of has the right kind of AI behind it, it will learn over time. So what I mean by that is it will begin to get better that when you ask it a question and that question's a little bit different, it may have a, a percentage of 75% that this is the question that you ask. So it gives you two answers. When you choose that answer, the right one, and you're happy with it and you move on, it learned a little bit. It went, okay, so that's probably the right answer. So maybe the next time it's an 80% propensity that you have the right answer. Mm -hmm. So it really revolves around the training of that bot. How I describe bots is a bot is like a new employee that you bring into your organization. You can give that bot some training. You can give that employee some training and put them out on the floor in the contact center, and they probably will survive, although not very well for a while. So over time, they'll get better as an employee. They'll get better as what they know. And if you continue to feed them with the right kind of information, they'll get even better. So that's what you're doing with your bot. You're training it, and then you're continuing to work with it to make sure that it's answering questions correctly. Doesn't sound like right. we're in the Greyhound phone room anymore. No, we're, we're not in the <laughs> Greyhound phone room anymore. Right. Interesting. <laughs> you know, and so for me then, uh, just going back to the bank question, had banks had this kind of chatbot AI infrastructure specifically around loans, right, where the chatbot already had some knowledge and some experience around that, inputting new information specifically around the new guidelines for these paycheck protection loans and emergency loans, things like that, could have been a bit easier. I imagine. Yeah. And I, and I think some organizations are already taking advantage of that. So I, I think that's been the case where they had that platform in place. So what I would have had to do is train that bot that now there's a new set of loans that are related to SBA. I would have had to train it on the information that relies upon the new formalities, the new applications, the new processes, and then allowed the bot to begin to answer questions to verify that we trained it correctly. Yeah. And I'll take that a step further. Like we can, as consumers and as citizens, be frustrated with the situation that you've just gone through, Aaron. And, and of course, like it, it's, you know, you're, you've got a business on life support and, and you need help. And this is going on all across America. Imagine the back end of this thing right now. And we're in crisis mode in America. We're in crisis mode globally, where we're trying to figure out exactly what is going on with all of our citizens. Who is sick? Who's infected? Who needs to be in a hospital? Who's on a ventilator? Who's out of work? Who needs help from the government? What's going on with unemployment? What's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to the dollar? What's going to happen to our stock market? Like We're trying to figure all this out at once. It's incredibly confusing if you watch even five minutes of your favorite news channel. Put yourself on the back end of these businesses. Like The government can't make decisions right now because none of this data is available to them. If they can barely get back to Aaron about the state of an application, how are they measuring what's actually going on inside of the economy? And now put yourself inside of a business on a normal day when we're not worried about a pandemic. If you don't have these systems talking to each other, if you're not using AI or chatbots in a way where you're getting into the guts of what's actually happening with your customers and measuring that, you can't make good decisions and you can't be customer obsessed. So you can extrapolate these conversations all the way from the Greyhound phone room to understand why the contact center 
and why using technology and culture appropriately is going to create a customer-obsessed environment for your business. That was a mouthful, Aaron. But now I know you have another question for Bob that's actually more interesting than the phone room. I know, I know. I had to get that last one in. But Bob, apart from your really impressive work with call centers and professionally, you've got a lot of other things going on personally that I think are just so cool. And I really do mean that. You write, you volunteer with Point Honduras to support children in need, and you also started a breast cancer early detection charity in honor of your beautiful daughter, Keisha. And your actions and attitudes around serving others really are humbling. And I just would like to talk a little bit about how that philosophy supports your professional ideas and innovations. How do those two parts of your lives meet? Well, a little bit about the uh, organization. So I, my son who was 15 at the time went to Honduras on a week-long mission trip and he came back a little different he was just a different kid so when he was 16 he went down again and he came back weird in a good way but weird in that he was beginning to change a lot of things in his life and he began to ask me about how I was spending my money and what was I giving to charity and and so it was it was obvious that it had impacted him I went down the third year with him and as I stood in the middle of a elementary school with probably 65 Latino kids standing around the tall white guy with the beard, all chattering, he walked over, put his arm around me and goes, now you get it. We have a, a nonprofit that feeds about 450 kids a day across four different areas of the city of T Tegucigalpa. We feed them, we double their school the kids there go to school in the morning and they come to our ministry in the afternoon or they go to the ministry in the morning and go to school in the afternoon. Schools are so crowded, they only go a half day. And then we have medical capabilities. We have two doctors on staff that provide medical to all those kids. So that's an easy one to be involved with because you realize that you're impacting kids that just have a different level of poverty. The second one is personal and not really even sure I can get through a conversation, still pretty raw, but my lovely daughter was diagnosed with uh, stage four metastatic breast cancer at 30 years old. She was a valiant warrior for four years on 14 different chemo regimens, not, not 14 different chemo infusions, but 14 different regimens over those four years. She once told me, whenever you talk about me, never say that cancer won because it has an unfair advantage. Mm. So when, when she succumbed to cancer after fighting so violently, we decided that we would keep her memory alive by attempting to engage women who were in her situation to ensure that they were doing two things. They were aware of the reality that 11 to 15% of all cancers are in women 25 to 40. It's not an older woman's disease by any stretch of the imagination. And then secondarily, that they're going to their gynecologist and doing self-breast exams because, you know, I, I wrote an article about the situation when my daughter was still here and it was called the question that every dad should ask his daughter. Mm. I realized that I had asked my daughter, do you have gas in the car? Are you checking the door before you open it? Are you walking through the parking lot? Are you being careful? But I, I never said, are you going to the gynecologist? And she wasn't. And as a result of that, by the time they found it, it was in multiple places in her body. So what we're doing is we're, we've started something called Keisha Warrior Princess. And uh, we are 
on a mission to remind dads that, hey, you need to make sure that your wife, your mom, your sister, your daughter are doing these things, are going to the gynecologist, are aware of, of these realities, even at a younger age. And then secondarily to focus on women for the same reason. The website is just about ready to launch at warriorprincess.org. It's actually live and we are about to launch our nonprofit in the next couple of weeks. It's a great way to honor her life. We already have stories of where her story has caused women to be checked, to find out that they have cancer very early and to get treatment early enough to not be in the same situation she was in. To your third question, which was, how does it affect my being in customer service? I, uh, Eric, have you ever have you ever heard of Enneagrams? Have you ever done the thing where you take the test, sort of like the old Myers-Briggs test, but you, you take a test and you find out what your number is or what your, your attitude is about life? I've done one of those. It was based on colors. Okay. We, we put the company through it, but I don't know that it was called an Enneagram, but I, I think I know what you're talking about. Well, I, I took one recently and found out that I'm a two, which says that I'm a helpful person. And, and I only tell that because what I find is in customer service, we do a lot of hiring. We go through a lot of people in contact centers and in the service world, I'm always looking for that person that has empathy, that is can empathize with the customer, that can understand where that customer is. And I realize after taking that test that perhaps it's part of who I am, but more importantly, it should be part of who you hire. If you're hiring in a contact center, one of the things that I talk about is a great question to ask uh, an employee is, tell me about a time in the last six weeks when you've helped someone. Now, if that person sits there with deer in the headlights look and says, I, I can't think of any time I've helped anybody in the last six weeks, they may not be a fit for a customer service job. Wow. Yeah. Because in reality, if you're if you're that kind of person, you went to your grandmother and helped her. You went to your aunt and helped her. You stopped at somebody on the side of the road. You're just a natural helper when it comes mm -hmm. to customer service. Well, wow. and that is such a powerful point. And I've actually never thought about it that way, Bob. You know, I come at contact centers thinking about the technology first and what access to information these people have to help me. I've never really thought about it in terms of, it's just like when you're hiring for any role in a company, like what are the key values or skills or character traits that an individual needs to have that can overcome the inevitable barriers and constraints that the corporate system or the access to data is going to impose upon them. And we've all been on the other side of that phone call when you're just trying to get something done in your life and you're struggling with a brand. What makes the difference is the attitude of the person on the other side having empathy with your situation. I've probably crossed the line many times in terms of my appropriateness talking to a call center agent, and it's always the ones that have the sympathy for me and almost cajole with me and say, yeah, I can't believe this is going on either. Let's figure out a path. Those are the ones that calm me down and make me feel better about the brand and ultimately solve my problem. Yeah. And if you have a contact center or you have customer facing folks and you're listening to this, the person that Eric just talked about probably fits a particular profile that you haven't thought about. Or if you have thought about that, you're not hiring enough of. If I look at who my quote unquote best customer service folks are, are my folks that get along with customers the best, the ones that don't seem to have a lot of problems when they're talking to customers. It's important that you understand what their profile is as the kind of person that you want to hire in the future. What do they look like? What do they sound like? 
What is their experiences that would allow you to hire somebody similar to them in that same kind of contact center or customer service role? I'd also say that in today's day and age where organizations are investing in AI and chatbots and trying to automate as much of the kind of -of run-of-the-mill questions and answers that happen through a contact center, the work that's actually out there for the call center agent is much more complex and it's higher value. It requires the individual to think on their feet and impose a positive personality because you're not just resetting passwords anymore. I mean, the technology is taking care of a lot of this stuff today. I have to imagine that the personality or the the profile of call center agents is changing dramatically. Yeah, there's both an emotional side of who I need to hire today, but there's also a cognitive side because I've got to be able to pick up where you are because you probably have already been on the website. You probably have already asked Google the question. You may have talked to somebody two weeks ago. You need me to pick up at step 12 and help you. That's a certain amount of cognitive capability. So if I'm in the contact center space, I keep scraping the easy ones off to automation. First, I scraped them off to the IVR and I said, okay, well, I'm going to put all these transactions on the IVR. Then I scraped them off to personalization of websites. And I said, okay, when you get on the website, you're going to be able to find an FAQ and we're going to somehow make it relevant to you. And then we scraped them off in the realities of AI. And so now we're finding that the kind of person that I need in in that role has to be a multi-talented, multi-level person. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the logistics of the person, but perhaps the most important is the culture and that we're hiring from a culture perspective of what fits into our company, but what fits into our contact center. I I love to tell the story about the culture of Southwest Airlines. We all either hate them or we love them. But the reality is, is that the experience on a Southwest Airlines is different than the experience that you have on other airlines. So they have to hire to a culture that fits that. So I was getting on the airplane. I don't fly Southwest a lot, but I was getting on the airplane. And I had a moment with the flight attendant. I don't know. I said something about the weather. She said something silly. We had a moment of laughter. So so it was as if we knew each other. But I sat down in my seat. I got on my phone as I typically do on a plane and I began to take care of business over the phone. So she walks by one time and she says, hey, you need to get off the phone. And I said, okay. And I, my thinking was, well, she won't be back for a couple of minutes. So I stayed on the phone. Well, when she comes back up the aisle the next time, she stops and she goes, may I have your attention, ladies and gentlemen? We're ready to leave the airport, but we have a gentleman here who, who has a phone call that's way too important for him to get off the phone. So we're just going to sit here and wait on him to get off the phone until he's through talking to this very important person that he's talking to. And I had my phone and I closed the flip phone and I went, uh, I got to go. Goodbye. And I hung up. Everybody clapped. Everybody had a really good time at my expense. Right. So where it mattered is later I walked past back to the back of the plane and I, I saw the flight attendant and I laughed with her. And, and I said, so what do they do to get you guys to be crazy and funny? And what do they do to make you do what you do on a Southwest airline? And she said, well, they don't make us this way. They hire us this way. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, in our interview, one of the questions that we have to answer is how have you used humor in your job? How have you used humor to make a customer feel better about their experience in the past? So they didn't make me this way. They found out that I was this way and then hired me on purpose to do what I do. 
wow, that moment, I, I walked back to my seat and sat down and I thought, I'm going to tell this story for the rest of my life as a leader that who you hire matters and then letting them be themselves matters. So she taught me two things that day about hiring that I haven't forgotten. Wow, what a great story, Bob. And you know, the thing about humor and how this flight attendant had the the personality and and also was willing to take the risk to put herself out there to diffuse the situation which easily could have escalated into a, an argument or into a, a negative situation. You know, that's very important in business. Humor in my opinion is is the great elixir that we need to use as we're putting together groups of people and engaging employees and getting them in a position to be customer obsessed. And we talk a lot about risk and transparency. Having a sense of humor in the workplace is is risky. It forces you to get out there and show your personality. And it also forces you to take a chance on how the receiver of your humor might react. And obviously, this woman was amazing and you reacted in the right way and got back in your seat and flew to wherever you were going. But I want to underscore the importance of humor in the workplace. Hmm. So that's where all those pranks at Blue Wolf came from. <laughs> I'll never forget the one that you, Glenn, and Josh pulled on me about six weeks after I started. <laughs> I wish I had time to share it, but it looks like I'm going to have to save it for another time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for part one of our interview with Bob. Join us next week for part two, where we'll talk about some pretty big customer experience fails and what leaders can and should be doing to build a strong customer service team and culture in their business. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.